Welcome along to the Care Team Sessions podcast. This is a podcast of talks from our monthly CPD events. For those that aren't already familiar with us, the West Midlands Care Team is a charity pre-hospital enhanced care team operating in the Birmingham area for over 30 years now. Care Team Sessions CPD events have something for all clinical levels from community responders right through to experienced in-hospital clinicians along with medics from other services like police and fire. We want to share the team's knowledge and experience with you. So Care Team Sessions is free to attend or to listen back to on this podcast. It's also an opportunity to raise money for the charity, which would help us to continue to do the work we do. If you'd like a CPD certificate for listening to this podcast, we ask for a donation of five pounds. Details of how to donate and claim your certificate are in the podcast description. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. Search at WM Care Team. Enjoy the podcast. So hi, hi everyone, good evening. I'm Joe, as Pete said. So what I've, what I've put together today is a, is a brief run through of a case scenario, which I think is hopefully not too far outside the realms of possibility. And it's gonna let us discuss a few of the different aspects of emergency airway management. Now, some of this is made up and fanciful, and frankly, some of it's a bit silly, um, but it's intended to generate a bit of discussion um, this is intended to also be a slightly kind of um, audience participation-y kind of talk, so feel free to shout out. There'll be some questions I check out at you. Feel free to also chuck questions at me. It'll be great. So a um, bit of a case synopsis for us then. So um, it's, I don't know, half past one in the afternoon on a frosty morning in January, and um, you're a member of a um, DCA crew and you're out responding on the, on the roads of Birmingham, and you just had your lunch, so you're feeling pretty sated and pretty happy and you get tasked immediately to a nearby job. And the job effectively um, over, the, over the radio is a, is a man in his 40s in confirmed cardiac arrest, um, unknown downtime, and CPR is in progress, okay? So um, when you get to the address, um, it's actually a very busy office, and you're met at the front of the building by a secretary who carries you and the team and all this through. And you come across basically a tiny office room full completely of people. And all you can really see through the throngs of people is a patient's feet sticking out behind a filing cabinet and someone doing some CPR that looks a bit dodgy. Um, so what are you going to do? Just a few quick thoughts. Shout out your ideas. What, what's going through your head? Chuck <laughs> everyone out. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we need to... Very good. Yeah, so make a bit of space, get people out of the room. Anything else people want to do? Yeah. Move the patient. Yeah, so we're going to get lots of space around the patient, aren't we? So we're in a tiny room. Where do we think we might put the patient? Somewhere with more space, where have we got, yeah. So I think a corridor's not a bad idea, is it? 360 degree space, yeah? So we get access to the whole patient from all angles. Anything else people want to do? Get some history. Say again? Get some history. Get some history, sounds good to me. So um, I agree. So we're going to get 360 access. We're going to clear out as much space as we can. If we can do that in the office we're in, fantastic. Don't feel free to move furniture out the way. If you're, if you're too constrained, obviously get them outside or somewhere a bit clearer. Um, we're going to um, maybe split our team up. There's two of us. So one of us can start doing some, some you know, life support stuff, can't they? And then, um, and then the other person might start to get a bit of history while they're doing maybe some of the monitoring. So um, in my head, there was obviously someone's going to start CPR or help the person doing CPR to do better CPR. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a key. And then we need to get a defib on, don't we? So we need to find out if it's shockable or not shockable with them and what we're going to do next. Um, so a bit more history about the case. So you are going to get some more history, maybe from someone else who's in the office. And they say that this, this is Chris. He's 47. Um, he's a senior logistics officer. He's a very senior person. Um, and you eyeball him and you think 100 kilos. And maybe in the back of your head, you're like, oh, I'm really good at BMI calculations. I think BMI 32. OK. Um, uh, it'll be a th be my 31. And um, the people in the office say they don't know what his history is, because how many of us know our kind of colleagues' medical history? But they don't know of any medical problems. So it's not to say he doesn't have any, just we don't know about any. So um, what in that brief bit of information sticks out to you? Bear in mind, this is an airway talk. Yeah, OK. And what does that mean when it comes to airways? What are you thinking straight away? Say again. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, it's going to be maybe a bit more difficult, isn't it? Okay, so um, thinking about airways, particularly in patients that are larger, I, I really like this graphic because I think it shows us basically in one image some of the problems we're facing. So um, when people are carrying a bit more tissue on the back of their body, basically their head will sit further back than in other people. And that means that their airway takes a slightly different position. Now, if you're lying down flat on the floor, you can see the head position there being flat on the floor compared to being ramped up. 
And this, this basically shows us the position we need to get in to optimise this patient's airway. And we're going to touch a bit more on this throughout the rest of the talk, but I just flagged this early on because um, obesity is a, a really common phenomenon now, about 30% of patient uh, population of the UK, something like that. I've made that number up. It's about that. Um, and, um, and it's not getting any better is the point. And it's probably the most common reason why we will have difficult airways and airway difficulties. Okay, so that's, although we'll talk about some other things that are much rarer and maybe much more exciting in this talk, um, obesity is still going to be the number one reason why you're going to struggle. So I think when it comes to airway difficulties, particularly out of hospital, the really key thing is to try and spot it in advance. Because what you don't want to do is find yourself in a position where you are now committed to a course of action, or maybe you've, I don't know, started to make some moves towards a hospital and suddenly you run into an unexpected airway difficulty. Because unexpected is what makes things even more difficult. If you anticipate something being trickier than it is, you're in the right frame of mind to deal with it because you've already anticipated that. You've maybe already thought through your troubleshooting steps. You've got the equipment out you need and you're kind of on the pathway to success. If it catches you off guard, that's when things go really badly wrong. Now, I tried to break down my airway prediction into three different factors. So you've got anatomical factors, you've got physiological factors, and then you've got factors that are to do with the environment and the scene and the setting you're in. And any one of those, or even those three in combination, can make someone have a difficult airway. So thinking about the anatomy then, what sort of things might we have anatomically that make our airway difficult? Bigger tongue. So again, bigger tongue, yeah, that's one good thing. Anything else? Difficult to get back soon. Yeah, so maybe problems with um, facial deformities or lumps and bumps, swellings, those sort of things we can't get a bag mass seal. Yeah, any other thoughts? Short necks. Short necks, yeah. Video Hold that thought, we're going to come back to that much later on. Yeah, thank you for that one. Facial stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly, I know. We're, we're, we're going to struggle, aren't we, here? Um, so, look, there are some pictures here that I'm not expecting anyone to be able to label. Frankly, I've forgotten this stuff from my exams now. But the, the point of showing this, uh, these images, which you'll all have seen before in, in your learning, is that there's a lot of stuff in the head and neck. They're really, really complicated. <laughs> loads of soft tissues, loads of bits and bobs, and all of it can swell up basically. So almost everything you can imagine in the head and neck can swell. And if it does swell, there's not much space for it to go in. And so if it ends up going inside, that's when it starts to block off the airway. Um, and this is the view that we'll get on laryngoscopy. Well, it's actually not quite the view we'll get on laryngoscopy. This is, this is taken from a fine, needle, uh, fine nasal endoscopy, which is basically passing a camera through the back of the nose into the nasopharynx and the oropharynx. You get this beautiful view of the glottis. But the point is, look at all this stuff here. So the epiglottis that can swell, and the arytenoids and cuneiform cartilages, all the soft tissues of the larynx. Within the larynx and the glottis itself, you've got the vocal cords, they can swell up. Any, any part of that can swell and you're not gonna be able to see it from the mouth. So you can have swelling and airway obstruction deep within the structure of the airway that you can't see from the facial structures. But there might be some clues that, that might happen. So can we think of any clues as to maybe bits internally swelling, some, some history we might be able to get from people? So anaphylaxis would be a, a you know, kind of a really ter terrible one, wouldn't it? But something maybe a li little bit less bad than anaphylaxis? Epiglottitis. Do you know what, what that is and what causes it? Yeah, so it's commonly kids. It, it doesn't have to be. It's, it's normally caused by haemophilus influenzae, but other, other bacteria too. And basically it's inflammation of that epiglottis and infection. And that then all swells up and all goes horrible and grotty. Um, I'm thinking about people with maybe with hoarse voices, where the, where the voice hoarseness is getting worse. That's a sign that stuff in here is swelling, isn't it? Um, uh, that might be a history of, you know, I've, I've had this terrible kind of sore throat for a few days and I'm now feeling terrible and I've got a sore a hoarse voice. I mean, most of the time that'd be fine, wouldn't it? But sometimes it'll catch you out. Um, similarly, people who are leaning forwards, drooling, holding their necks, they obviously can't breathe. Um, that's obviously all bad stuff, isn't it? So a sign that something bad's going on inside. So that, that's, a, that's anatomy. I mean, other, other stuff we haven't mentioned in anatomy, obviously, is trauma. So if half your face has been blown off or, or scraped away by some horrible trauma that's happened to you, that's not going to be great for your airway either, is it? Um, when it comes to spotting those things, um, I like to think about the airway anatomy in kind of different levels. So you've got, you've got the level of stuff that's kind of clearly above the glottis. And what I mean by the glottis is, going back to this last image, um, this area here. So the, the, the inlet, which then links through to your vocal cords. So the stuff that's clearly above that, so that's in your head and neck, isn't it? That's in your face, your tongue, your teeth, cheeks, those sort of things, all these structures that you can see. Then you've got levels that uh, are at the glottic level. So you've got the actual um, vocal cords themselves. You've got stuff that's then deeper within the, the airway, so within the trachea. And that's much harder, isn't it? Because we, we don't have any access to that. Um, but we can come on to that a little bit later on in the talk. But then there are also all those external things, aren't there? What about if you had a mass in your neck that's then compressing your airway? What about if you had a, a rapidly um, 
expanding swelling from bleeding or something. Something we see in, in, in hospitals sometimes after neck surgeries, you might get a hematoma which expands and compresses the airway. So just be aware of some of the external things that can cause airway compression and airway compromise as well. This slide's meant to show the complex physiology of the airway. I think it's tempting to think of the, the airway as just a bunch of tubes that are, that are there or they're blocked. But in actual fact, most of the tubes are actually just muscular tubes. And if the muscular tone of those tubes is lost, then in some cases they'll collapse down or they'll be blocked and kinked. So whilst it's relatively uncommon for people to suffer airway compromise as a result of abnormal physiology, if you had someone who maybe was overweight, um, who was maybe deeply unconscious for whatever reason, then you might find those two things in combination are enough for the tone of the airways to have deteriorated to the point where there's no longer a patency. Maybe the tongue is, is kind of relaxed and is now partially occluded in the airway and the neck's flexed and so it's all kinked. So that's the reason I, I talk about physiology. Um, now this next slide, they're tomatoes. It's, it's tomatoes. Scene and scenarios and environment even something which is a relatively simple airway can become very complicated because the setting you're in is a complete nightmare. So something relatively simple to fix in a hospital or in the back of an ambulance when no one's watching you, like an eye gel not fitting all that well, can suddenly become a crisis you can't manage just because everyone's shouting and screaming and jumping over each other. So just be mindful of that. S sim simple things um, become complex in complex scenarios. Okay, so back to our to back to our history then. So so someone tells you that they that he was fine like twenty minutes ago. I just dropped his lunch off to him. So so why why is this guy arrested? Just some quick thoughts. Joking. Joking. I mean, it's top of my list, isn't it? Really, but I didn't ask what kind of sandwich it was. But um, I don't know if that makes a difference. You you wouldn't really you struggled to choke on egg mayonnaise, wouldn't you? I think. Um, yeah, it's true. Yeah. So we're thinking about food, right? So what other causes could there be for this guy to suddenly have arrested? Anaphylaxis. It's unlikely, isn't it? But it's possible. So he could have had an anaphylaxis reaction to something he ate. MI, if he's a big guy. Could be an MI, could be an MI. On the, on the kind of thought around thrombus, something else that might cause a sudden arrest. Okay. Sorry? Sorry, it's on the board anyway. PE, yeah, there we go, there we go, there we go. Yeah, it could be a PE, couldn't it? I mean, if we, if we were to think about these causes, what would be put as like near the top of our list? What would be common? Yeah, hypoxemia, probably from choking, right? Or it could be from anaphylaxis, but probably from choking. So, that, so we're already thinking, okay, there could be an airway aspect to this cardiac arrest, unsurprisingly, given it's an airway talk. Um, okay, so um, we, we task one of our crew to, to take over CPR because it's clearly ineffective and the person that was trying to do it is just not able to continue. Um, so they're now out of the game. So you've got one person doing CPR and they're doing good quality CPR. So what are we now gonna do as, as the person who's left? What's our priority? Yeah, not IV access. What about when they need adrenaline in a couple of minutes' time? Yeah, okay. I think that's right, isn't it? So airway management. Okay, so you decide to focus on the airway, and then what's your next best step? So at the moment, at the moment for context, you have a patient who's basically lying there, they're having CPR done, and your bag is kind of over there but not open yet. You've got a defib on maybe, and it's showing you a non-shockable rhythm. So you're just doing CPR. You need to now look after the airway. What are you go What are you going to do? Yeah, if you're skilled to do so, go for C. Yeah. If not, one of the higher ones. Cool. Okay. So let's talk through these different options and see what they're like then. So, so face mask ventilation, what actually, what's that going to achieve in a situation? You might be able to push a foreign body out of the way, stick it into a right hand bronchus if you've got a left working. Yeah. What about straight to eye gel? straight to further down, potentially if you put an eye gel in. And what do we think about the last one? Just talk me through, so we, we mentioned about trained and competent to do this. So what, what would be the competency you'd need for this? Yeah. Is there a step we can have before laryngoscope though? Something a bit simpler than laryngoscope? Yeah, we can just have a look, can't we? We can just open the mouth and see if there's anything in there. Uh, so you can just open the mouth, use a pen torch, see if there's anything there. If this guy's choking on a big chunk of sandwich, you might be able to hook it out right without a laryngoscope. Um, okay, so you decide to do that. So you, you open the patient's mouth. Luckily, you can open it and it's all looking fine. And you see a massive chunk of sandwich. So it's clearly not egg mayonnaise. It's something a bit chunkier than that. I don't know, cheese and onion or something. Um, and you, but you can't get out with your fingers. You do try, but it's too far back and there's too much of it. Um, so what else could you use? Forceps. McGill's forceps, yeah. Um, and any other bit of kit that we really use from this situation? Suction. Suction could be helpful, yeah. But I mean, it's gonna, you're going to struggle with LSU, aren't you? Sucking this massive chunk of sandwich out. And what else? Okay, I'll give you a clue, it's got a light on it as well. Mm -hmm. Laryngoscope, great. 
So I think these are the two key bits of kit in this situation. And in fact, one of our scenarios, you're going to, for those of you that haven't yet used, I'm presuming everyone has used a wind kit before, but if you haven't, we've got a scenario on it later, this exact scenario, someone is choking and you're going to hook some sandwich out. Okay, so, um, so you try and hook that out and um, you identify this, oh, it's a steak sandwich, there we go. So it's a steak sandwich. And you, you scoop the food bolus out with some McGill forceps and you start to hear a gurgling noise because your, your colleague's now compressing the chest and airways air is actually now coming out of the airway, which is good, right? So the airway is looking a bit better. But our patient's still dead, isn't, it? isn't he? So we've, we've maybe fixed the problem in the sense that he choked on a sandwich and we've stopped him choking, but he's still dead. So we still have a problem, a big problem. I mean, I'd argue a really big problem. Um, so what's our airway plan now? So again, maintaining the airway. Do we have an airway at the moment? You said stepwise. What would your stepwise approach be? I would, I would want to probably use an adjunct. Yeah. Probably get straight through an IGEL. Yeah. So if it's easier, you can do it over here. But I would probably do that over face mask. Quick show of hands then. Who's in camp IGEL? Well, it's, it's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. Who's in camp face mask ventilate? And who's in camp? Well, I've already got a laryngoscope in. I may as well just wang an AT tube in, right? Sorry, we're not allowed to do that. Not that we're sore about it. No. Um, also, interestingly, um, probably no better in a situation than putting an eye gel in, I'll argue. Okay, I'm, I'm in camp eye gel, but I'm going to tell you my logic to this. So, face, I don't think face mask is the wrong answer. I think face mask is just a less good answer. A couple of reasons for that. So, face mask ventilation is really operator dependent. I mean, really, really operator dependent. You guys will all do it far more than people in hospital. So the commonest thing that I do when I turn up to emergencies is not do anything clever, just optimize the ventilation. That's, that's literally a basic skill that for some reason people lose because they don't do it very often. Um, the two hand technique needs someone else to squeeze the bag. So you've, you maybe have got your helpful person who was doing rubbish CPR who might be able to help you squeeze a bag, um, but yeah, they might have played off by now. And you don't want to stop your, your colleague who's doing CPR so they can squeeze your bag. And you're probably not going to get a great one hand technique on this guy. Um, so just bear that one in mind. Um, you're likely to need an OP airway, aren't you? So that means you're going to have to open your bag anyway. <laughs> so you may as well get the eye gel out while you're there. Um, and the, the last thing I think about face mask ventilation is even if you're effective at it, all it's going to do is ventilate the lungs. It's not going to do the other thing the eye gel does, which is give you some degree of protection of the airway. So let's think about the strategy with our airway management situation. You've got someone who's dead, they're in cardiac arrest. Um, they've just had a sandwich, so they're not fasted. Um, they're not ventilating at all. So we've got kind of two different strands here, haven't we? We want to ventilate their lungs, and we also want to protect their airway from any further damages. Now, ventilating their lungs-wise, we basically need to get oxygen to their heart and their brain, uh, the two critical organs in this situation. We need their heart to start beating again. I mean, we need their brain to be functioning, so it's worth their heart beating again. And then we need to optimize the acid-base balance. So we need, to, we need to remove carbon dioxide from the blood that's circulating around their body so that the acidosis that they're clearly in by now, because they've not been breathing for so long, gets better. So their heart's in a biochemical position to pump again. Because if we're really, really acidotic, because we've got very high CO2 levels, our heart won't restart properly. So those are our two key bits of strategy from a ventilation perspective. But then we mustn't forget about the second thing, which is protecting our airway. So even if we get this guy back into a ROSC, and even if we get this guy to hospital, and even if we get this guy to, I don't know, wake up in three days time, if he ends up with a horrible chemical pneumonitis or horrible chest infection because of aspiration, which we could have just done something about, that's a bit of a shame, isn't it? So I think it's, although it shouldn't be our primary focus, our primary focus is ventilation. If we had two strategies which offer the same benefit from ventilation, but one gave us some airway protection, I'd argue that the second one's better, right? So eye gels, and it, <laughs> really bugs me as I'm an anaesthetist and it bugs me all the time and I'm really petty about this. It's not eye gel like iPad and iPhone and iPod, it's eye gel with a hyphen and I don't know why they did it, it would have been such a good marketing ploy wouldn't it if they'd gone little i big G but they didn't, it's small i small g, I don't know why, it makes me cross. Um, so the good thing about, oh beg your pardon, the good thing about eye gels is they're less operator dependent than your face mask ventilation. Um, they do offer you some degree of airway protection. The reason is because they sit at the back of the throat and they basically block stuff going down the wrong way. But they also have this drainage channel, which can either passively drain stuff out or you can put a suction catheter, albeit a very fine one, down, um, which, is, which is useful. The gel of the actual laryngeal mask itself will mould to fit the shape of the laryngeal inlet, which is helpful and makes you a better seal internally. And also it's got a bite block within it. Um, so if the patient were to 
start maybe having some return of circulation. As we've all seen in cardiac arrest, sometimes people will have trismus, they'll clench their jaw. If you're trying to do um, face mask ventilation without an OP airway in, at that point you might then lose your airway. If you've got an eye gel in, it's very difficult to, for them to occlude it because that bite block which stops them biting down. Okay, so on eye gels then, what, what size are we gonna use? This guy's 100 kilos, BMI 32. Five. Yeah. Well, in reality, you've got to, you've got to grab one, haven't you? Yeah. What size are you going to grab? Who's, who's uh, hands up for size five? Just because this is estimated weight, but yeah. Dependent. Hands up for fours. I think I think you can both be right to be honest. Um. So okay. So that I've nicked this directly from my gel. See, bit small i, small g. There we go. Um. Um. These are your sizes for gels. Um. But uh, this kind of thing's useful as a guide, isn't it? but it's it's not a rule it's not like you're going to be like saying well this guy i need to get him on a set of scales and oh he's 100 kilos that means he has a size five um in reality um what you're going to do is you're going to make the best estimate you can based on the information you have and then you're going to triage it i think sometimes in emergencies we can get a bit stuck trying to do the right thing to start with when actually we need to make a sensible choice and then troubleshoot it so i think a size five or a size four would be entirely appropriate if all i have is a size four i can tell you the number of times i've anesthetized patients that are massive and a size four is the right one for them and the number of smaller people where a size five fits perfectly. I mean, on average, it's going to be the right you know, size four or size five. How about the jungle to a large pediatric for a very small adult? There we go. So, you know, these are, these, are, these are guide, not rules. But I think a size five would be a sensible first choice for me. But the right size eye gel is the one that lets you ventilate the patient's lungs. Yeah? You've got a full ring and it's not a good airway, don't get good entitled. Would you start first upgrade or downgrade? What do you think? I don't know, because upgrade to get better seat or downgrade because it might be too big. In, in this guy, you mean? Yeah, probably upgrade. But in general, do you just go by body size and up or downgrade? I think so. I've I, I, I rarely put anything smaller than a three in an adult. And I've, I've never put anything bigger than a three in a kid. Um, you know, by which I mean 12 plus. Um, so I guess it, you'd have to eyeball it and see which one you think. I mean, normally if it's too small, you can kind of wiggle it a bit, a little bit, and you kind of feel that it's not quite right. And if it's too big, it's clearly too big, and it's not going to go. Um, so I think you, it's, it's a bit operator dependent. I can't really give you an answer to that, but ultimately you're going to try the different sizes. And if you need to open all three, then you open all three. Okay, so you, you bung a bit of Optolube on the back of your size five, um, and it goes into his mouth nicely, but it gets stuck at the back. Who's had that before? A few people. Uh, why? Sorry. More, could be more. Could be more sandwich. Could be more sandwich. Um, yeah, I think that's right, isn't it? Um, this. Where, where is this guy at the moment? On the floor in his office, right? So positioning is going to be suboptimal. How many people have pillows in their offices? I mean, it's, you might have one in the back of the truck, but you probably haven't gone to get a pillow, have you? Um, okay, so um, the same picture from before, just showing us how um, our airway position really matters. Um, but also a, um, a silhouette that I think qu quite nicely shows this problem. So um, doing a head tilt chin lift and hyperextending the airway, you can see your straight line. Um, so it's not just about opening the patency of the airway, it's, it's meaning that your eye gel actually hits the um, back of the throat with the right angle of attack, so it bends the right way. What I think sometimes happens is that the tip almost gets caught around here, and then it kind of flexes backwards a little bit and gets, then starts going the wrong way, or it just, you're just kind of running it and it's just hitting the back and won't go around the corner. You need it to go in and around the corner and follow the tongue round. So by extending the airway properly, you might just give it a bit of a nudge and a bit of encouragement. Um, something else you can do if, if you've got enough space, you can get a finger or two behind it to try and push it around, but sometimes you just find the eye gels are so chunky you can't really do that. Um, but I think that's, that's commonly a problem we see with eye gels. Um, and again, not always because it's the wrong size, it's just because the positioning is not great. Um, we're not going to train you to do this on this, on this course on tonight, um, but some people who are trained to do this in hospitals will, will if they're really struggling, um, use a laryngoscope and put an LMA or an eye gel in that way. Um, so that's another option that's available in some cases. Okay, so despite trying a head tilt chin lift, um, it's still not going in. So Is it too what's big? next? Could be too big, yeah. Um, who, who thinks it could be too big? Yeah. Anything else? Any other reasons why? Again, is it, is it actually bent to go around or is it still at the same point? Yeah. Then you can change them either try and raise shoulders or maybe you could try jaw thrust. I think raising shoulders is a good one. Jaw thrust is quite handy. How would you do a jaw thrust for this one? 
opposed to someone else, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, you're probably stuck by yourself, aren't you? Um, so one thing you can do if you are really stuck in your are by yourself, so you're probably, so what, what position would you guys be in if you're putting an eye gel in? Would you be standing behind the patient looking at their head? Would you be standing to the side? Would it be a bit dependent on where you are? So you prefer to be kind of like looking down the patient with your feet away from you, head towards you, right? That's the best position. So if you're in that position, you can kind of push their head round underneath, can't you? So it's hyperextended. You can get a thumb underneath their bottom jaw and lift forwards. So you basically kind of almost grab the jaw and lift it up. So that's, that's almost doing what a laryngoscope would do for you, apart from you haven't got a laryngoscope in. It looks a bit brutal, but it does really work. So you, you're lifting their jaw up that way, and then you often have bought yourself enough angle to then get the eye gel in a bit more. The other thing I think sometimes is um, a bit more optolube. Sometimes they get stuck on the tongue or the structure at the back of the throat. So making sure you've got plenty of lubrication and also having, a, having another look, as we said before, make sure there's no more sandwich stuck in there. Because if you're just bouncing off a bit of cheese and pickle sandwich, that's not gonna help, is it? Okay, so we've done all that and it's still not working. So um, we, si we try size four and lo and behold, just to prove the point, it goes in really nicely. And in fact, it goes in so nicely that it lines up perfectly with the, with the black line, which shows you when it's in, right? Perfect. And obviously this is not our 100 kilo man. Um, and you try ventilating at your 10 breaths a minute, um, but you're finding you're just getting a lot of farting noises. We've all heard those farting noises, haven't we? That kind of dreadful noise that you just know means nothing really good is happening. And it's coming from the airway, I should add, it's not your colleague. Um, so does this matter? <laughs> Who thinks it matters that you've got all this farting noise coming from the airway? Who thinks it doesn't matter? And who thinks it depends a bit? Yeah. What does it depend on? Yeah, okay, so it depends on whether or not we are shifting air, doesn't it? So do we have good other, other signs that ventilation is going all right? Um, any of, are there any other things it depends on? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think it depends a lot on whether or not you have evidence your ventilation is working. So I would actually personally be happy with a slightly farty eye gel, as long as I have other good evidence that ventilation is working. Um, so even in hospital, when we have perfect conditions, sometimes they just don't quite sit right, and you just kind of have to deal with it a little bit. But they're still fine. It's fine. Uh, when it's not fine, you need to do something about it. So I, I don't think it's such a thing as a, an eye gel that's making these noises is bad, and it's only good if it's not making the noises. I think it is more complex than that. Um, but you know that airway farts don't appear in the ALS guidelines. <laughs> that's, that's not part of the algorithm. So, um, so how can we actually check if our ventilation is good enough? So, oh, sorry. Yeah, go on. Uh, visible rise and fall. Visible rise and fall, like it. Auscultate, I like it. Any other? End tidal, like it as well. What kind of end tidal? EPCO2. Uh, what kind? Do you know different kinds of end tidal? Yeah, so <laughs> I didn't ask the question very well. We've got two different kinds, haven't we? We've got the colorimetric one that just lets you plug in and it kind of changes color as it goes past. That's not going to help you very much. Um, you don't have that anymore. Good, they're rubbish. Um, and then you've got the modules you plug into, right? Yeah, fine. So that's going to give you the information, isn't it? Um, any, anything else? Any one last thought? Bit, bit out there. Also visualisation and actually feeling and resistance from the back. So yeah, actually that's a good one. That's not visualise it going in, other than actually seeing it. It's not on my list, but I like it. What I got was I got your clinical assessment and I got your monitoring. Okay, so clinical assessment we've already mentioned. You have got your chest rise and fall. I think really underrated. I think if, you're, if you've got good chest rise and fall with an eye gel, then I'm really reassured. It doesn't matter how farty it is. Um, and then auscultating for air entry. But what other useful information would we get from air entry? Mm. Yeah, I mean, he's probably not got a pneumothorax, has he? But I mean, never say never. <laughs> Some, you know. um, but useful to know, useful to know at this stage. Um, okay, and then monitoring. So you've already mentioned the entitled CO2. So that's fast, isn't it? That's almost a breath by, well, it is a breath by breath monitor. So every time the patient breathes out, um, the monitor will take a sample of gas from that breath and it'll pass it through an infrared spectrometer and it basically measures the amount of carbon dioxide then that's in that gas sample. And so you get this nice graph, don't you, showing you your entitled CO2 trace. And the great thing about that is not only does it give you a trace so you kind of know that you're getting ventilation, but also the change in that number over time tells you how good your CPR is and give you information about when you've got return of circulation, as we all know. So really useful monitor, probably the most useful monitor we have in this situation. Um, but I put SATs on there, and SATs are important. I mean, at the moment, a SATs probe is not very reliable because this guy has not got a circulation, or not very good circulation. Um, but, I mean, we already mentioned before, part of the reason for trying to ventilate this guy is, yes, we want CO2 to be going round and round, but we also want oxygen to be going round and round, don't we? And so when we have better circulatory parameters, maybe when we get a ROSC, maybe if we still have some airway problems, what your SATs are is quite helpful. The problem is they're really slow. 
So a, a SATS probe basically averages your saturations over the last 30 seconds or so. So it doesn't give you a monitor of what the patient's doing right now. It tells you kind of at some point in the last minute something changed, which I'd put to you as a bit less useful than the breath-by-breath -breath monitoring your CO2 gives you. But I think the two together are handy. And I wouldn't say the SATS are useless and the CO2 is good. I think they're just both, they both have their uses. Okay, so you've done a bit of troubleshooting. Um, you're still not happy with the iGel. What other problems could we have with this? Size. Yeah, it could be. Let's, okay, let's, let's make this question a bit, a bit simpler. How could we categorise the things that might be going wrong now? If we had to think about this in some, some kind of structure. So you've probably got an obstructing at the glottis or just beyond. Yeah. Be yeah, yeah. So you could have ongoing obstruction, couldn't you? A lot of aspiration. aspiration stuff, so some kind of nasty fluid in the wrong places. Any other thoughts? I don't know what the pathology of the mystery system is. It's true. Well, exactly, yeah. Could be something else going on there. I reckon, okay, here's, here's my troubleshooting guide for eye gels, and this is not exhaustive, this is just kind of what went through my head straight away. So I broke it down into patient factors, into equipment factors, and into factors that are my fault <laughs> as a person responding. So patient factors, who's heard of laryngeal spasm? It's, re it's, not, it's not very light in this situation, I put it on for completeness really, but that's basically where, you, where your vocal cords, and they both uh, adduct together, and they, they kind of clench like closed. So it's much more common in patients who are not in cardiac arrest, um, but it could happen as, it could be a cause of cardiac arrest, um, or even it could happen as, as a patient kind of returns to so circulation and starts to recover. Um, basically, that means you have a complete airway obstruction at the level of the glottis. doesn't matter how good your eye gel sits, you're not going to be able to blow air through it because your vocal cords are closed. So that's, that's one potential cause. Um, what about soft tissue obstructions? We already mentioned that before, didn't we? Um, again, pretty unlikely. We think this guy's choked on a sandwich, but by this point, we've rammed an eye gel size 5 in a couple of times. That's not gone very nicely. We've been fiddling around with an up size 4 as well while doing CPR. If there wasn't swelling at the back of his throat before, there probably will be now. And some of those really friable tissues that, you know, like the um, epiglottis, like the cuneiform cartilage, the arytenoids, they're all pretty delicate. They're not used to having stuff kind of, you know, hard rammed at them because it's the back of our throat. Like it's not, it's not, it was never intended for that. And so as a result, they do swell really quickly and you can then get com almost complete airway obstruction just because you get such swelling of the mucosa. So that's another potential um, cause. Um, some more foreign body, a bit more sandwich stuck around the corner that we've not fished out yet. That's a possibility, isn't it? And then what about vomit and secretions, as you mentioned? If you've got you know, absolutely tons of um, yesterday's breakfast or something all come up, then that also could be causing a problem. Um, equipment, so we've already mentioned wrong size a couple of times, um, but it still could be the wrong size. Maybe the size five was right after all, and we just need to get it around the corner. That's, that's not impossible. So sometimes you need to go back to the size you're in, and for some reason it works the next time around. I don't know. Um, it could also be failure. Unlikely, they're pretty good nowadays, but you know, we've all seen stuff that's broken or gone wrong. Um, and, you know, it could be something like um, it's been stored at the wrong temperature and the cuff is deformed. Um, so worth definitely taking it out and having a look at it, making sure it is patent and there's nothing that's gone wrong with it. Um, or then things that we may not have done properly. So we maybe haven't inserted it fully or correctly. It, it looks like it's in right. Um, who here has used an, I, uh, an LMA, not an eye gel, one of the ones you have to inflate? So these things go in wrong all the time. Like they, just, they just twist around. Um, when you blow the cuff up, it blows up in the wrong place. These, it's really unlikely for the eye gel to do that, but it's possible, theoretically possible. So it could have twisted around internally. It looks fine outside, but inside it's twisted. Um, you could be ventilating too hard. You could be really overexcited and you're squeezing the bag really hard. Why is this not? And it's because you're ventilating so hard, you're bypassing the valve, the, the pressure release valve on your bag valve valve. And so none of the gas is going into the patient because it's all coming out of your pressure release valve. So just gent gentling your ventilation a little bit, maybe going a little bit less vigorously on the bag, that might be helpful. An another common thing that we see in emergency situations, particularly in hospital, is um, people ventilating far too much. So do you know what the capacity of your bag, mask, bag valve mask is? The actual, sorry, yeah, one and a half, two. It depends on what your model, obviously, but it's the ones we have in hospital too. Um, the average tidal volume for an adult man, 500 for a petite lady, 350 maybe. So you're, so you're probably overventilating them if you're putting a litre in and they don't need that much. So even though, you, even though the entire bag is being squeezed and the entire bag's not going into the patient, it might still be enough for them to be ventilating. Does that make sense? So even though we're getting farting noises, even though the chest is not rising and falling amazingly, even though far more is coming out of the bag than is going into the patient, it might still be enough for that patient to be ventilated adequately. So don't chuck out the baby with the bathwater. If you think this is good enough, that might be good enough. Okay. But none of this has helped, and you're just not happy. Let's say we have capnography and it just looks a bit rubbish. 
Um, and it's not because your CPR is not effective. Your CPR is definitely effective, but it just, you're just not getting a good kind of gas back. Maybe, maybe your bag feels very loose and you're not really seeing chest rising or falling. And you ask say, and you hear a bit of crackling every now and again, but it's not amazing. What are your options now? Yep, okay, so we've already tried all the sizes. We've tried all the sizes we have. Oh, I mean, in the airway ladder. Oh, in the airway ladder. Too, Go on then, tell me, what, so what, what's next then? Call someone to tube. Call someone to try and tube, I like that. So that's one option, isn't it? What, give us another option. Okay. Yeah, okay, we haven't tried that yet, have we? Yeah, so OPA, OPA and, or MPA and try and ventilate for a face mask. Good idea, like it. Any other thoughts? Needle crike is an option, isn't it? Is it a good option? Yeah, I agree. You're going to be doing needle crike practice again today. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about needle crike, so we're going to talk about it out there, but I'll just mention it briefly. So it's, it's an emergency, isn't it? It's an emergency airway rescue manoeuvre for oxygenating. So basically what you do is you blow high pressure oxygen into the airway through a um, small stoma in the front of the neck. And how does that gas get back out again? It doesn't come out, this, it doesn't come out the stoma. It comes out... Yeah. <laughs> It comes out through, it has to come out through the mouth, okay? But if, you're, if you have no patency coming out through your mouth because it's blocked, then it can't come out. So that's a big problem, isn't it, in airway obstruction? Um, so you're basically gonna blow more and more and more gas in, you're gonna build the pressure up in the chest, and then what? It'll, it'll continue to expand. So it'll buy you out of a complete disaster situation. It'll give you a big bit of oxygenation. If, you, if even a bit of gas leaks out again, that's good. So if, if the problem is you can't get gas in, but gas can come out, and that is sometimes a problem, then, then a needle crike will be effective in the short term. Um, but it's not a long-term solution. So it's definitely a we're running to hospital and we just need to keep the patient alive kind of approach rather than a we're going to sit here and try and go through our algorithm and maybe get some IV access and we've got a needle crike, it's, it's all fine. Um, cool. Okay, so that's another option. So we've got face, bailout face mask, OP airway. We've got call someone for an ET tube and we've got um, needle crike. Has anyone got any other options? I haven't, I don't think. Those are my three. Oh, I like it. I've never heard of that one before. Go on, tell us about that. Uh, I think you like trace the side of the mouth and you sort of twist it last minute. Yeah. So if there is a potential obstruction or the anatomy. I think it's in the, like the user manual on how to use the eye Very good. I've never read it clearly. No, I haven't. <laughs> uh, I like it. Yeah, so we can, we can be a bit innovative with our eye gels. It's a good point, actually. So, um, so sometimes they need a bit of a wiggle. And we mentioned before about head positioning. So sometimes you can hyperextend the neck, you can try flexing the neck, you can try um, getting some fingers behind it and pushing it into place. So you, it's worth trying all those things just to see if you can get it a bit better. Um, one thing that I find sometimes works is going lateral. I mean, obviously it's difficult if you're in a cardiac arrest situation, um, but if you weren't in a cardiac arrest situation, even turning the head round can sometimes be enough to then get the airway to sit a bit nicer. So those are the things I'll be trying. Um, but if none of that's working, then those are our only three options, aren't they? Okay, so needle crike, I think we can say, we'll put in our back pocket as a, as a we, we know we can do it, but we think we need to try other things first. So we're going to try an OP airway. Um, I'm not going to talk about OP airways and bag masks. We've already talked about it briefly, but let's just assume that you decide to start going along with those lines. You're, you're having those discussions about, is the eye gel good enough? Can we get a, do we want to take the eye gel out and put a face mask on? Um, you're maybe having a chat with your crewmate and saying, Ooh, what do we think? Um, who is going to wait at scene and call out for an enhanced care team to come and tube? And who's going to, who's going to try and make a move towards hospital thinking well our gel's all right it's not amazing it's making farting noises who what's everyone thinking i'll be asking to see how far the nearest enhanced care team is before so nearest enhanced care team is not very far away but you're a five minute run on blues from a big hospital from a nearest ed can, can you we're going to assume you are both feeling very strong today. <laughs> you're, you're, someone's heart have kind of taken the wall down, so you have a clear run through to your truck. It's right there. <laughs> yeah. Did we establish whether he was actually in cardiac arrest? We haven't talked about it. It's a good point. It's a good point. It was on my slide to say at one point that your, um, your crewmate has been amazing, and they've managed to do CPR and also give drugs and keep an eye on the monitoring. And it's, and it's been, it's been asystole throughout. Asystole throughout. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah, we could try that. I mean, you're also your crewmate by this point is probably doing CPR for 10 minutes. Probably pretty knackered, right? <laughs> who, okay, but that's a really good, I like the point. Um, who thinks that they could do a good airway insertion after 10 minutes of CPR? <laughs> Bang it in, yeah, it's really. Um, I think in reality, 
it's, it's often not user error. It could be, you're, you're completely right, it's worth a try. It, everything's worth a try at this stage. Um, and uh, we should definitely be swapping around CPR every two minutes or three minutes, right? We should be doing that anyway for CPR quality. Um, but let's assume that your, your colleague swaps around and they try the IGL and it's, it's, not, it's just not working. This is the wrong patient. It's just not happening today. Um, so we've said our two options are um, hang around for an enhanced care team or start packaging up. And if the enhanced care team gets here, then great, right? That's pretty much, that's pretty much it, isn't it? Um, so let's just say for argument's sake that care, we're around the corner. They just finished their lunch. They've had, they had a very nice KFC. And, sorry, they've had a steak sandwich. Yeah. Um, they just finished their job around the corner and they're, they're free to attend. Um, and so they come along. And what they do is they make the, they make the scene a bit less complex. So let's say they, um, they come along and they put the Lucas on. So now we've freed up, we freed up both of our teams. By this point, your second crew has arrived because obviously you'd had second crew tasked. So you've got loads of people now all over the place. Um, if you haven't already got IV or IOXS, you now do have that. So the scene's looking a lot better. You, you maybe have started to um, think about your reversible causes and you've kind of said, we think actually this is what we thought it was, which is choking. We can't think of anything else. There's no other reason why there should be anything else. Um, so they say, we agree with you. We need to get to hospital. We're not happy with this IGL though. And we think we can just wang a tube in quickly. Um, so they decide to start prepping for, a, um, for an intubation, which they do. Um, so the tube's about to go in, but they're clearly struggling. Okay, so the, um, the clinical team lead is struggling with his airway. Um, what protocol do you guys know about that might be useful in the situation? Yeah, that's right. So who's had a burp? So it's backwards, upwards, rightwards pressure. So you basically push back on the kind of laryngeal apparatus, rightwards, upwards, and you apply pressure. And basically, it, it, if you're if you're struggling to get a view of the larynx, I can't really describe it. Um, it will kind of push it into view in some cases. Let's say they've tried all of that, but it's still not working. So does anyone know of a protocol? Surgical airway is part of it. Who knows the, what the what the what the protocol is called? Anyone ever heard of the Difficult Airway Society's Difficult Airway Protocol, Failed Intubation Protocol? Fair enough. So, um, so in hospital and also out of hospital, for those of us that intubate, um, there is a society called the Difficult Airway Society who basically look after difficult airways. It's in the name, right? Um, and they have a bunch of different pathways and protocols, but this is their one for failed intubation. So basically, this is a stepwise approach to recognising that a crisis has occurred, which is really important because over the years, enough people have died as a result of people not recognising the crisis, ploughing on with the intubation, and suddenly 20 minutes have passed. So that's the reason why this came about. So recognising the crisis and, and communicating it well, and then going through a stepped approach to do sensible things to try and get the airway into a safer position. So basically in this situation, um, we're already doing laryngoscopy, or the, the team is doing laryngoscopy, and they're, they're not getting a tube in. So it limits you to three attempts, um, or maybe a, a fourth one if you have a second person with you who's more expert who can have the fourth attempt. If you haven't managed it after that, after those four attempts, despite having tried things like giving the patient a muscle relaxant paralysis drug to try and loosen the airway muscles and re-optimising the position, etc., then at that point you then go back to your supraglottic airway device. So we've already, put, we've already tried that, haven't we? We've, got, we've had an eye gel and it might be good enough. But by this point, we might find that the airway swelling by the back of the throat is so bad that now the eye gel is not working either. So if that's the case, we, we have a few different options. So we can either um, try and reposition and optimise the eye gel, but if that's not working, then we then go on to our face mask ventilation. So all sensible stuff, we kind of talked about this already. So we put an OP airway in and we try and ventilate the patient. And if that doesn't work, then our last stage is a cricothyroidotomy, which is a surgical airway. So this basically is, again, it goes through a stepwise approach to doing this. Um, and this might be something you guys see side of the road at some point, um, maybe, hopefully not. I mean, it's pretty dramatic, but um, in our careers, it will all happen to us at one point. Basically, it's a surgical airway, so it's a cut through the cricothyroid membrane, a twist of the scalpel blade. You pass a bougie in, pass a size six endotracheal tube over that bougie, then you inflate the cuff. So you basically cannulate the trachea with a bougie and then pass the tube in directly. Um, and it's pretty quick and it's pretty effective. Okay? Normally, the hardest thing about this is the decision to do it. Once the decision's been taken, it's actually really quick. Um, so, that, so your role at some point might be when a team is clearly struggling <laughs> to say the words, do we need to do a surgical airway? Because sometimes that's all people need to hear to then move on to the next stage logically. Right, some other little bits then, as I know this was basically responding to some questions. Yeah, go on. Just go back to that yeah, of course. Cool. Okay, kids, they're just small adults, right? No pushback, okay. <laughs> if, we were, if we were in a room full of paediatricians, you'd been chucking stuff at me by now. Um, Okay, so they, they are not small adults, but they are similar. So um, key things you need to know about kids and their airways. So 
because they're smaller and they tend to be growing and they tend to be more metabolically active, they become hypoxemic far faster. So the consequence of them losing their airway gets bad really quickly. So whereas with an adult, you might have as long as, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes to sort it out if they're being pre-oxygenated. In kids, you'll be hypoxic within a minute. Okay, so that's just something to bear in mind. So things happen fast and that will stress you out because the numbers all look terrible on your monitor. So just bear that in mind if you're dealing with a peds airway crisis. Um, they're more likely, I'd argue, to have airway compression from soft tissues in grown-ups, just because everything's so much smaller. So if it's smaller and closer together, it's more likely to swell and then completely collapse itself. And then we mentioned things like epiglottitis, tonsillitis, all these nasty things that kids get, which are more likely in kids. Um, and then in neonates, so, um, so uh, infants up to the age of 30 days, and also um, maybe a bit beyond that, um, they have a really large um, occiput the really large back of their head which means that basically their head sits forward in the in the position that can compress their airway so and we need to open their airway by tilting their head back but it's not as far as we tilt it in an adult if we go all the way back like you would do in a grown-up you'll you'll then compress it the other way and it'll, it'll kind of almost stretch too far so it's a neutral position in the nh rather than the um rather than the sniff in the morning air position um and then the last thing is a large tongue so a large tongue gets in the way of any airway you're put in so with neonates in particular, you might need to go up and down quite a few sizes before, we, before you find the right eye gel. Tracheostomies came up briefly earlier. Um, okay, so the key question you need to ask with a tracheostomy is, is the upper airway patent? Who, who's familiar, who's, who's happy with trachees? Or I should maybe ask a question in a different way. Who's not happy with trachees? <laughs> okay, but, um, I don't think anyone's happy with trachees. Um, the key question is, is the upper airway patent? And I put an asterisk next to tracheostomy deliberately because we call a lot of things tracheostomies, but they're not all tracheostomies. Okay, so there are two things you can have. You can either have a, well, okay, you can have three things. You can have a normal neck with nothing. <laughs> you can have a tracheostomy or you can have a laryngectomy. And those two last things are completely different. Okay, so a tracheostomy is where you basically make a hole in the front of the neck, but you still have the patency of the upper airway. So your mouth still communicates with the outside world and then that communication goes all the way down into your lungs. Okay. Um, a laryngectomy takes that connection between your mouth and the outside world away because for whatever reason, normally cancer of the larynx. And so as a result, now the only connection is through the front of the neck. So with a tracheostomy, you can occlude that hole there and you hope the connection to the outside world through the mouth still works. If you occlude the hole of a laryngectomy, there is no other way for air to flow. And that's, what, that's why the two are really different. Now, in the last couple of minutes, I just wanted to talk about these two emergency um, protocols, which I'm not going to go through in detail now, but I can signpost you to them. They're on the um, National Tracheostomy Safety Society or Safety Group's um, website, and it's worth having a look. They're mostly for in-hospital teams, to be honest. Um, there aren't all that many people walking around with tracheostomies, or well, tracheostomies at home, but there are a few. Laryngectomies you might see a bit more commonly. And basically it goes through a stepwise approach. So with a, with a tracheostomy, basically the, the approach is, um, is the patient breathing? And if they are, you can give them oxygen both via the tracheostomy and through their mouth. So it's not forgetting the mouth might still work. That's one of the key bits of information. And then it's checking the patency of that tracheostomy by passing a suction catheter through it. And if there's anything on the outside of the tracheostomy, so some things people have, they might have um, one of these things, which is called a speaking valve or a passimur valve. That basically allows air to, um, to come in through the tracheostomy, but then it forces the air out through their mouth. So it passes the air over the vocal cords and that gives them a voice back but that can cause an obstruction. So if you take that off and the problem goes away, then great. Um, similarly, they'll have inner tubes normally, which are these things here, and these can get clogged up with gunk. So um, again, on the protocol, it's taking the inner tube and any speaking valves out while leaving the tracheostomy tube in place and then passing a suction catheter down it. If the suction catheter won't go through that, then it's obviously blocked, isn't it? The problem with the tracheostomy. And then the protocol goes on to say, take the tracheostomy out and then try and ventilate. Um, and you can obviously, if you need to, try and do anything you'd do normally from the top end, couldn't you? You could put fingers over the hole and you could try and put an eye gel in through the mouth. So you have a few different options there because you still have a connection with the outside world. Now, laryngectomies are completely different, as I said, and this is because you no longer have that, whole, that connection with the outside world. So um, people will walk around with, with laryngectomies for years, decades. Um, they'll have no voice unless they do because sometimes they'll have a little valve put in which gives them a voice back. So don't be caught out. Um, and with a laryngectomy, you normally don't have an inner tube in, you normally just have a stoma. They might have a stoma kind of like protector. Oh, some people wear these kind of scarf things to cover up the hole, but um, normally there won't be a tube to take out. But if there is one, same as before, you take it out to make sure there's no blockage, pass the suction catheter through. But with a laryngectomy, if you're still running into difficulties, you can basically ventilate through that hole there as you would do through someone's mouth. 
So you could either use a pediatric face mask over that hole, or maybe even an eye gel. So eye gels actually work really well. You can just hold it, you know, with the kind of um, the end piece over the, over the hole, and it forms a nice tight seal over there, and you can ventilate normally. Sounds awful, doesn't it? Hopefully that never happens. But just some simple tips. Cool. That was a lot. Um, any questions? So, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to a patient a while ago now, so I can't remember which about the patient, but he had a laryngectomy. Yeah. And it kept on collapsing. Yeah. Down, okay. It was going from being um, having a, a patent airway and, and talking to immediate collapse. Um, and it was quite alarming, but being unsure what, what we could do, and the crewmate suggested tube, putting the tube down. Yeah. The other crew that came out, we were dead against it, so in the end, we just chucked him. Just just got going basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, as soon as we got to resource at Wallsgrave, they, 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 knew the, they knew the patient um, handled it really well. But what, pre-hospitally, what can we do in that sort of situation? Because it's quite a low down yeah. structure. That's niche, that's really niche. Yeah. Um, uh, I think so putting a tube down might have helped the situation, but it might not have done, because you might have had to go really far through yeah. with an ET tube. I mean, what I, the only thing I can think of is you could have done some CPAP. Um, so you could have used either a face mask or, a, or an eye gel over the hole. And if you had a Mapleson C circuit with you, um, do you guys carry those? No, so you, you'll struggle with a bag, ma bag mask ventilation unless you have to have a peep valve one that you can do this with. But if you, if you had the right kit and you could apply a bit of peep over there somehow, then that might help keep the distal airways open in a similar way to it would help with COPD patients, um, stop the distal airway collapse. But that's about the only thing you could have done differently. And I don't think that would have made a massive difference, to be honest. I think in reality, it needs to be scoop and run, scoop and run, I think. The right answer is, is put auction over that. Yeah. So any ventilation that does happen yeah. is auction rich. Yeah. So I was just about to say, when you talk about peak, we do have an option on our power packs to increase peak. Cool, okay, that could have worked then. <laughs> I can't tell you to do anything you're not meant to do. Cool. Okay. So my three take home messages really then from this talk, and I know we talked about a lot of stuff. So when it comes to difficult airways, think about anatomy, physiology, and the setting you're in. When it comes to eye gels, they're a bit of a nightmare. Um, try up and down sizing them, try manipulating them, both the, both the eye gel and the patient, and don't be afraid to bail out to a face mask. Okay? Um, and when it comes to tracheostomies or laryngectomies, the key question is, is the upper airway patent? Thank you very much. That's it for this Care Team Sessions podcast. You'll find information on how to get your CPD certificate in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also follow us on social media at WM Care Team. Thanks for listening.